Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. We're going to read Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, and then we will go to the Lord and ask his blessing on our time and his word. If you will, please look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the child of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Will you bow your heads with me? God, we just ask your, your blessing on our time together. Help us to understand, to see, to get Paul's point as he concludes now this argument we've been looking at for weeks. I pray that as we finish this and as we begin to transition into chapter 5, that we will begin to be able to live out the concepts that we have been looking at for weeks now and understand how they apply to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come now to the end of Paul's main argument against these false teachers here in Galatia, uh, we find ourselves, I think, at somewhat surprising place. After all of his detailed biblical and theological arguments that he's been presenting now for a chapter and a half, two chapters, after taking the time to reinterpret for us, if you think about it, the entire purpose and story of the Old Testament, after having made it abundantly clear that the Old Testament law cannot save us and never has been able to and it never will, Paul now turns to that very law to make his argument, final argument, in a way that is, as I said a moment ago, a little bit surprising, I think, to us. And to understand why it should be surprising to us, let's turn our attention for just a moment into church history and a church father named Origen. Origen was born to a Christian family in Alexandria, Egypt, in about 184 A.D., uh, not only was he classically trained of uh, education at the time, but he was also pretty well versed in scripture from a young age. And so at about 20 years of age, Origen started, or restarted, depending on your view of history, a school for teaching script, the scriptures in Alexandria that became one of the most influential schools in all of the early church. And Origen then, along with it, became one of the most influential teachers, Bible teachers, in all the early church. Now that said... That doesn't necessarily mean that he was a good Bible teacher or a great Bible teacher. It just means that he had a great deal of influence. And as I look at Origen and kind of 
critique him from my particular perspective, I would say actually he was not a very good Bible teacher and that in actuality, while he may have been very well-intentioned in all that he was trying to do, uh, I think he did a great deal of harm both in the short run and in the long run to the church because of his approach to interpreting Scripture. You see, Origen believed that there uh, was, and we'll just use uh, for simplicity's sake, two levels of meaning within all of Scripture. So as you look at scriptures, two levels of meaning. There is first the lower level, which is for the uneducated or perhaps the unenlightened, the people who maybe aren't as, as well-versed in how to interpret scripture as origin was. And this would be the surface level, or in other words, the literal meaning of scripture. Now, that's not to say that origin rejected a literal interpretation of scripture, at least not completely. He generally, I'd say, was embrace, would embrace a literal meaning, though he would deny a thing or two here and there. For origin, it just meant that if the, if the surface level of scripture, if that literal meaning is all you see when you go to the scripture, then you're missing a big chunk of what's going on in the text because for him, the fuller, more complete, higher level of meaning within Scripture was to be found within what we would call the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. In other words, the hidden story of Scripture. I will not assume that all of you know what an allegory is, so here's the definition of an allegory. An allegory is a literary or rhetorical device where the characters, events, and details of the story all represent various other things, truths, or morals, okay? So a good example in modern church history would be John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Or at least you know what it is. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, it's the story of a man named Christian who is on his way to the celestial city. And on the way to the celestial city, all kinds of things happen to him. He meets all kinds of people with funny names and funny events and funny situations, except none of it's meant to be taken Literally, it's not a true story, and yet it's a very true story because it's an allegory of what the Christian life is like as we make our way to heaven. What kinds of people and situations and things do we run into? And so this is the same approach that Origen took, not with a piece of literature like Pilgrim's Progress, but, but, but with Scripture itself. He would come to it and try to see what's the, what's the deeper story? What do all these things represent? So, for example... The story of creation had two levels of understanding in Origen's mind. He uh, didn't deny the literal creation of the world by God, though he did deny a few of the details of it. He just thought there was more to it than that. He saw in the creation of Adam and Eve the creation of the two parts of the soul. You say, there's two parts of the soul? Eh, I don't know. But he thought there was, okay? So he saw there's two parts of the soul, and Adam and Eve correspond to those two parts. And when those two parts are in harmony, they have children, the good impulses of the heart, the good things you want to do. That's how he interpreted Adam and Eve and their ability to have children. Uh, let's take uh, the creation, or excuse me, the, uh, the requirement of God for man to have dominion over the fish, birds, and beasts of the air. He saw these as representing the acts proceeding from the heart and soul, that's the birds, the desires of the body, that's the fish, and the movements of the flesh, that's the beasts. So man has to have dominion over these things. He has to reign over them, control them, so they don't get out of hand and do things that they're not supposed to do. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about an allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Here's another example, this time from the New Testament. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you guys know that story. Here's how Origen interpreted it using his allegorical approach. The man who fell among robbers was Adam. Jerusalem represents heaven. And Jericho, since it was away from Jerusalem, represents the world. 
The robbers are man's enemies, the devil and his comrades. The priest stood for the law, the Levite for the prophets, the good Samaritan for Christ. The beast on which the wounded man was placed is Christ's body, which bears the fallen Adam. Uh, the inn is the church, and the two coins that the guy pays to the innkeeper are the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. And then finally, the good Samaritan promises that he will come back again, so Christ will come again at the end of the age. That'll preach, right? I mean, <laughs> you, that's pretty good. He got a lot out of that story of the good Samaritan there and all the details of it. He was able to find something in every bit of it. But, but what's, of course, the problem with that kind of approach? Well, the problem is, is that the only limit on what you can find in a particular story of Scripture when you're interpreting it that way is, is your own imagination, whatever you can come up with. So, you know, I can do this too. I'll interpret the story of the Good Samaritan allegorically. I think the man who fell among the robbers is an alien, and I think the Good Samaritan is Burt Reynolds. I think the inn is Motel 6, which makes the innkeeper Tom Bodette, and the two coins clearly refer to country music, music and Sudoku, right? <laughs> Am I wrong? You can't tell me I am, not based on that particular approach to Scripture, right? Why not? Why, why couldn't that be the real meaning if this is the way we should approach Scripture? And that, of course, is the problem. Origen's allegorical approach to the inspiration of Scripture was very influential, as I said, in his day, and it did a lot of damage to the church, both in the short run and in the long run. Because the proper approach to Scripture is what we would refer to as simply a literal or normal interpretation of Scripture. I've talked about this before. It's just where you take what someone says, what someone writes, normally. Just normally. Using whatever they intended to communicate as being your, your basis or your guide. That's the correct way of interpreting Scripture. And that's exactly what Paul has been doing throughout this larger section that we've been studying here. He's been taking primarily the story of Abraham and the covenants that God made with Abraham and been interpreting them for us so that we could understand God's intent with the story. He's not been making up crazy things and saying this is that and that's that and whatever. He's, he's just been going into the text and, and working through it, explaining it, hopefully like we try to do each week. In fact, this is just Paul's normal approach everywhere uh, that you find him. He preaches and teaches and writes and argues from Old Testament texts, not by changing their meaning, but by simply explaining and helping us understand what the meaning of those stories really was everywhere that is, except here. As you can see here in verse 21, Paul has one final argument to make in this main body of argument here in his letter to the Galatians. He directly addresses these people, these believers, who are considering walking away from the gospel of grace to this false gospel that says in order to be right with God, you have to believe in Jesus and accept the Old Testament law. If you want to be saved, this is what you do. And he says to them, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, I just want you to pause and consider the, the, the meaning of that question for a moment. What he's saying to them is, you, you say you want to go to this. This is what you're telling me and everyone else that you're, you're aiming for here. But do you really even understand? Do you even know what it is you're going after? Have you even listened to what the law says? And he then begins to remind them of one of the biggest and most important stories in all of the Old Testament, but specifically one of the most important stories in the Torah itself, and that is the story of Abraham's two sons. I will, again, not assume that everyone in the room is familiar with this, and I'll walk through it very quickly. Abraham had two sons, one, as you see here, by a slave woman, 
and one by a free woman. Now, this is kind of important because it directly connects into the very argument that Paul has been focused on all throughout this section in, in Genesis 15 where God came and promised his, uh, gave promises to Abraham. And we should know that story pretty well now, but just as a quick recap, remember Abraham is doubting God's promises. And, and God appears to him and says, I'm going to do all these great things for you. And Abraham says, I, I don't see it. I don't even have a son. I don't... Right now, if I were to die today, my slave would be my heir. And God says, no, no, no. Slave's not going to be your heir. You're going to have a son. And you're going to have so many children that if you could count the stars in the sky, that's how many, how many offspring you would have. And that is the point where Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 15, verse 6, that great verse that we spent so much time on weeks ago now. And this is the moment where Abraham does what Paul talks about in Romans 4, right? He has hope against hope. He, he places all of his hope and trust that God will do the impossible because he and, and Sarah, they're elderly. This, this can't possibly be true, but God has promised and Abraham believes it and God counts it to him as righteousness. But then you come to the very next chapter, Genesis 16, and what happens? Well, there's Sarah recognizing that she cannot have children on her own, she's infertile, she devises a little plan. She has this servant, an Egyptian girl named Hagar, and she decides that she will give Hagar to Abraham as a concubine so that he can have a child with her. In other words, if Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah will claim that child as being her own child. Talk about Jerry Springer, right? I mean, that's, you, you read this and you're like, what? I mean, Really? And I love that because the Bible almost never pulls a punch when it describes for us what people do. There's a few situations where the Bible treads lightly in a particular story or scenario of their authors and don't maybe give us all the details, the dirty details that they could. But a lot of times they just lay it out there. And here's Moses. He's just laying it out here for everyone to see. Good, bad, and ugly. And this is clearly the ugly. And as you think about this at the time, culturally, this was acceptable. I highly doubt any of the three of them looked at this situation and thought, eh, this is probably wrong or weird in some kind of way. No, well, it was wrong and weird in multiple ways. But the most important of which in this particular context is that it goes directly against what God had just promised. The whole conversation between Abraham and God just one chapter prior, it goes against every last bit of that. God had promised to give Abraham and Sarah a son, something only he could do. But they take matters into their own hands, and Abraham does have a son with Hagar. That son's name is Ishmael. And Abraham, we are told in Genesis 16, verse 16, is 86 years old at that time. As a side note for later, Ishmael will go on to become the father of the Arab nations. Just tuck that away for a second. Now, fast forward five chapters and 14 years in time, and you come to Genesis 21 and the birth of Isaac. And I'm just going to read to you the first five verses. I'm not going to put them up here, so just listen. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. All right, so finally, 
Finally, after all this time, after all this waiting, God fulfills his promise. And I love that Moses highlights that specific aspect of that story as he begins to tell it here. The Lord visited Sarah. The the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. He he just wants to be very clear that what has happened is is a miracle. All right. It is it's impossible. It was impossible physically, but God has done this, and only God could have done this. And so now if you think back here to verse 22, you see Abraham has two sons, one by a slave woman, Hagar, one by a free woman, Sarah. But the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. And now the meaning and significance of that, I hope, is clear to you. In Ishmael's case, his birth is very much according to the flesh. I mean, it's just normal. You've got a fertile girl, a guy who can impregnate her, they have a baby. I mean, anyone can do that. I remember listening to uh, Elizabeth Elliot one time, if you know Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, on the radio, and she was talking about counseling and specifically counseling girls, and she had said that sometimes she get a, a young girl who was pregnant come to her like, Miss Elliot, I don't know how this happened. She's like, I know how it happened. It happens the same way every time, right? This is what happened. According to the flesh. In Isaac's case, though, his birth is through promise. In other words, it's outside of Abraham's power. There's an elderly woman. She's infertile. Abraham cannot on his own get her pregnant. And yet, here she is with child. And that's not to say that this is done outside the normal means. I'm not indicating that at all. The baby's miraculous in that sense, like Jesus was. But it's something only God could do. It's something that could only come through promise, all right? So this is it. This is the story from the law that he reminds these Galatian readers of. Now he says, this story that they should know very well, now you understand it as well, may be interpreted allegorically. And as I said earlier, Paul's normal approach to Scripture is to simply take it and interpret it normally, just to go through the facts and details like we would here and and explain what what the intent is. And this is the only time, though, that I'm aware of out of all of his writings where he does this exact thing. He's about to reinterpret the story of Hagar and Sarah, of Ishmael and Isaac, from an allegorical perspective. Okay, well, let's see what he does with it. He says that these two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bears children for slavery. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you are not in labor. Continues the quote there. He says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but... Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Did you follow all of that? I mean, he just like, a whole bunch of stuff all at once there. You know, in, in a normal allegory, like Pilgrim's Progress, for example, or even in Origins interpretations of Scripture, in a normal allegory, each thing just represents one other thing, okay? So, so the fish is this, and the donkey is that, and the Good Samaritan is Christ. You know, it's, it's just one thing represents one other thing. But in this particular example, the details that Paul gives represents a lot of things. First, on the Hagar and Ishmael side, we see that they represent the Old Covenant. In other words, the law. The Torah, the, the, the law that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai in the wilderness when they were on their way out of Egypt. 
And this is, Paul tells us, of the flesh and equal to slavery. Flesh, slavery. Have we heard those words before along the way here in Galatians as we've been reading the argument? Yeah, we have. We've heard them quite a bit, actually. Paul's been using them over and over again to describe what the law is like. He says its modern-day equivalent, from his perspective, is the earthly city of Jerusalem. And why would he say that? Because that's the seat of Judaism in his own day, right? That's where the, the Pharisees and the Jews who are opposed to the gospel are headquartered. And then finally, like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, which is likely a dual reference to Genesis 21.9 in the section there, and to the persecution that existed even in Paul's day between Arabs and and Jews, that's not recent, so don't think that is. That goes back thousands of years. He says, like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so do those who follow the law persecute those who follow Christ. He got all of that out of that Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac story that we just looked at. Okay, what about the other side? Well, on the Sarah Isaac side then, and not all of these, these, these details are stated, but they're implied by the fact that he countered them on one side, you're implied on the other. Well, they represent the new covenant. The new covenant that God promised in, in the Old Testament and that we see completed for us on Calvary, a different mountain where Jesus is going to die. And this is a covenant not of, of, of slavery and not of, uh, of, of any of those. It's a covenant of promise, a covenant of freedom, because there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it. It's of grace start to finish. It's a gift, and its equivalent would be the heavenly Jerusalem, which, which has no earthly citizens, no natural citizens, and yet it has lots of citizens, right? Because they are now one with Christ. It was just argument he's made along the way. And then like Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael, so the followers of this covenant are persecuted by those of the other covenant. Again, he gets all of that out of the Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac story. And it leaves us with two questions. Why does he do this? And is it appropriate? In terms of the first one, it's why he does this here when he doesn't do it anywhere else, many scholars believe that Paul is likely responding to a similar, if not almost identical, argument that these false teachers in Galatia were probably using pretty easily and regularly. Uh, you say, are you, are you sure about that? No, I'm not 100% sure about that. But when you see someone do something that's so out of the ordinary, it forces you to ask the question, why? Why? Why would they do that here? They haven't done that before. They never do anything like this again. So what's going on here? And, and, and I would say from my own study, it seems to make the most sense, not only within the context of Galatians, but within the larger context of all of Paul's ministry and writings. It is possible that these false teachers are using some similar approach, perhaps uh, allegorical in and of itself with, their, with these believers there to try to lure them away. And Paul is taking their very approach turning it on its head and putting it back at them, trying to help the believers there understand what's really going on, that those who live under the law are not the true children of Abraham. They're like Ishmael. They're like the Gentiles, those who are enslaved, those who, who live according to the flesh. If you want to go back to that column, okay, but don't be fooled to think that you're going to be a child of Abraham by that. No, 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 no. That's, a, that's being a child of slavery over there. Those who live under the gospel of grace are the true children of Abraham because they are the children of promise and of freedom. So which one do you want to be, Galatians? What column do you want to fall under? If you're going to take this kind of thinking, have you really thought it through? 
Which one do you want to be? Well, seen from this perspective, the law doesn't look quite so good. So I think he's using their own argument against them. Can I be 100% sure? No. But, but you do see him do similar things elsewhere, like in Corinthians, where he keeps repeating his, you know, everything's lawful. You know, where do you think that's coming from? It's probably coming from the people who are causing problems in the Corinthian church. So he takes it and turns it on his head. Yeah, everything might be lawful, but not everything's helpful. Oh, yeah, everything might be lawful, but not everything builds up. He likes to do that when he's dealing with an opponent, take their own arguments and use it against him. And so when I take that and see he doesn't use this approach anywhere else, it seems to make the most sense of what's going on here. Now, second question, and maybe more important, is it appropriate for him to do this? And of course, the default answer is yes, because it's scripture, right? I mean, that's kind of easy. I mean, at the most basic level, it's yes, because Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. These are God's words, and as such, they're automatically appropriate. But even at, even at the rhetorical and hermeneutical level, remember hermeneutics is the, the study of the art of interpretation. So even at that level, I'd say it's yes, because I do think he's simply turning an argument on its head and using it against these false teachers. But does that mean we should do this? That's really the big question, isn't it? Is that how we should approach Scripture then? And you're sitting down in the morning and you're, you're reading this or that, and you're like, oh, I'm going to find the deeper meaning here. I'm going to see what God really meant in this passage by using my imagination. Um, no, I wouldn't recommend it. There's an old joke about trying to find Jesus on every plank of the, uh, of the ark, Noah's ark, or in every nail. You can try, but I wouldn't recommend going that way. Because when it comes to Paul's normal approach to the interpretation of Scripture, remember, this is an exception and not the rule. And I think it's an exception with a context that, that makes sense of it, and therefore I don't know that we need to, to try to mimic this when we are reading Scripture. Now, does that mean that we can't find connections and themes and ideas that, that seem to be happening in one story that we maybe find somewhere else? No, it doesn't mean we can't find that at all. In fact, I think if you interpret Scripture normally, literally, you're just reading through, you're going to end up finding lots of connecting ideas and themes. I just don't want to see you turn everything into an allegory like Origen did. As I said earlier, the only limit then is to what you find in your own imagination. And so, so what's Paul's point with all of this? Where does, where does he end? Well, look at verse 30. He says, but what does the scripture say then? Out of all of that analogy, right? If he's gonna, you're going to pick a column, you're going to go one way or the other, what should you do with it? Well, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman. Cast out her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. And so that's the final call. The, the, the final application, the final plea of Paul's argument here is to reject. I've been explaining to you for all this time why they're wrong, why they're not telling you the truth, why they're lying, what their motivations are. Here's what you need to do. It's very simple. Cast them out. Reject them. Turn your back on them and walk away from them. Now, just to be clear, he's not referring to all Jews everywhere as if this is some kind of anti-Semitic thing. No, no, no. Paul's a Jew. He's speaking to Jews. Like he, that's not his point at all. His point is that these false teachers, anyone who would distort the true gospel of grace and try to bring you back into the slavery of the Old Testament law, must be rejected because they're trying to enslave you. So do not listen. Reject them cast them out. You are not children of the slave woman like them. You are children of the free woman. So stay in your freedom. Stay. 
And as we look, begin to look, and even if you have your Bible open, I would just encourage you to look at the very first verse of chapter 5. What word stands out in the very first verse of chapter 5? Any word jump out at you? Freedom. See, see what he's doing here? He's bridging. He's getting ready to, to turn a corner. As you turn to chapters 5 and 6, you're going to see that they are just really the application of this argument and that this will be the theme. Stay in your freedom. Stay in your freedom. Don't leave your freedom. Live your life in this freedom. Understand this freedom. Hey, don't abuse this freedom. But stay in this freedom. This is something the church and I think believers today desperately need to think about. I'm talking about us here at Cornerstone. What does it mean to be free in Christ? What does that look like? How do you live then? Because you think about it from the Jewish perspective, they always knew how to live. Whatever the law said, do it. And Paul's like, that's done. What do you do then? And what do I do? Well, this is where we're going to turn beginning next week. So will you bow your heads in prayer and let's ask God to help us as we begin to go into this very, very important section of the letter to the Galatians. Jesus, this is in a sense, why we have come to this letter, because through all of this second big chunk of Galatians, it, there's a part of me that's been almost tired of it at points. Like, I'm not, I don't follow the law. I don't, I'm not Jewish. I don't, I don't live my life there. I never have lived my life there. And yet I also recognize there's a very real part in which I have. And as we think about our own lives as Christians and what it means to live in the Spirit, Many of us don't know. We, we don't even begin to understand what kind of freedom you've called us to and what that freedom should look like. There are many believers who don't enjoy that freedom, some who abuse that freedom. And so we know that all of this has been building for this moment, for us to go now into the, into the text and see what does it mean to live out the freedom that we have in the gospel of grace and faith in Christ and so I pray as we do this that you will prepare us, prepare our hearts, and help us to come honestly and willing to have our assumptions questioned, our motivations questioned, and our actions changed if your spirit so directs. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.